Good morning, Mercy Hill family. Um, I usually say it's so good to see you this morning, but I don't really see any of you this morning. I certainly hope that you can see me as you're watching online with you and your families. And uh, I just want to say a couple things. Let's get caught up a little bit. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We're just going to look at three verses in the Word of God this morning. Luke, chapter 2. In just a moment, we'll begin in verse 1 and look through verse 3. Uh, as you're opening up, let me just say a few things. Um, uh, we don't have regular worship this morning, music worship this morning. Uh, Lord willing, we will next week. Uh, of course, many of you know that uh, Nick has been sick. He's not been feeling real well, and uh, but he is getting a little bit better. He wanted to still try to put something together, and I told him, Nick, we're going to be fine. Just relax. Just get better. Take care of yourself and take care of your family. So continue to pray uh, for Nick and for his family. Uh, as far as the rest of the staff, <clears throat> they're still, most of them anyway, are isolated away, and uh, they're just probably going a little bit crazy, ready to bust free. Uh, as for me and for my family, we're doing well, very, uh, quite well. Uh, a lot of people have been asking me exactly what happened, you know, how did you feel? And to be honest with you, I just felt like uh, I had come down with the allergies that I come down with almost every year and uh, just um, started feeling kind of worse in the beginning where I had a lot of cramping uh, and just kind of in my body, but mostly throughout, I didn't have any breathing problems, praise God, didn't have any fever through the whole thing. Uh, really, I just struggled more than anything with just being exhausted, just being flat out tired until just about a couple days ago. And so I'm good. And uh, other than a little bit of congestion, uh, I'm feeling great. So I just want to thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank you for reaching out to us, taking care of the staff. Um, phone calls and text and, and food that people had brought by. Thank you so much for taking such good care of us. We love you. And, and not only for what you've done for us, but even in the midst of all this, you ministering to those families, uh, the Wilder family and the Hartmans uh, in the loss of their loved ones uh, this, uh, the, over the last week or so. So thank you so much for doing what you do the best, and that is being a faithful church of God. So thank you. We love you. Uh, we just want to jump right in this morning. And so let's go ahead and and, and do this. Again, thank you for um, all that you've done for us, and let's continue to look after each other and care for each other. But uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and actually look through the first um, five verses, actually, this morning. Uh, but let me open up with a word of prayer. Dear Jesus, we come to you. We thank you. God, I just pray that, what, that you will do what only you can do, and that is help us to believe all the more by the truth that we find in your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember being in seminary, and one of my professors gave me some really valuable advice. He, he told us as a class, he said, gentlemen, just remember as a pastor, you are never going to be able to please everybody. And that throughout the course of my ministry has been great advice. I realized very soon that uh, because of the decisions that I would have to make or things that I would teach or what I would teach that the Bible would say, that people would just not always agree with that. So it always helped to comfort me that even when people were in disagreement, um, that really what God had called me to do was to be obedient to his word and do what he instructed me to do uh, by the word of God. And so that always helped me. But if I were to give advice to young preachers today, to every preacher right now, I'd probably change that phrase up just a little bit. Instead of saying, hey, listen, remember, you can't please everyone, to rather, hey, guess what? You can't please anyone, not in this day and time anyway. 
And the reason for that is because so much is going on and everybody has an opinion on what should happen, how things should work, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, and everybody believes that they are right. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Just over the last month or so, month and a half or so, maybe a month ago, you might hear people uh, say things like this. Church member number one, Pastor, why in the world are you reopening churches, church services so soon? Immediately followed by church number, member number two, Pastor, why in the world did you ever shut down church services to begin with? Then a couple of weeks later, things changed. Then you would hear something like this, church member number one, pastor, you don't seem to care about struggling minorities. Immediately after, church member number two would say, pastor, you haven't said a word in support of our police. Then a couple of weeks after that, you'd hear something like this, church member number one, require masks. Pastor, clearly you don't care about human lives immediately followed by church member number two, require masks. Are you kidding me? Pastor, clearly you don't care about human liberty. So this is the times in which we live. Everybody has a different opinion. Everybody has uh, strong opinions about what should be done, what shouldn't be done, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, when we should do it, when we shouldn't do it. Uh, Even when it comes to what a pastor should preach. Uh, Recently, not so much our church, but just reading some blogs and, and listening some, to some other people speak, uh, a lot of people have been saying, what is the most important thing for pastors to preach right now? And some I've heard say, well, look, it's most important because of the election year that we understand our responsibilities as, as Christians in America, American Christians, and that we need to get back to the basics and we need to be able to vote our conscience and really talk about our responsibility as citizens, Okay. Uh, Then others would say, well, no, the most important thing that we need to preach about right now and that we're facing is uh, racial reconciliation. What we really need to be doing is teaching our people about critical race theory and intersectionality. Those are the things that ought to be taught from the pulpit. And here's what I would say. I, I would agree to those to an extent. I think those things need to be addressed. And I'm constantly struggling with what to say, how to say, how much to say, and how to address those issues to better prepare our congregation. But I want to remind you, and I don't think that I have to, but as a reminder, my primary responsibility is to preach the Word of God in season and out of season. That means when it's popular, when it's not popular, when it seems to be the best thing to do or not to be the best thing to do. Um, That is what God has called me to do, to be faithful to the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word. Now, there are some that are gonna have a problem with that, and here's why. Because they don't believe that the word of God is relevant to the things that are going on today. They just don't see the relevancy of it. And so what they'll do is they'll say, well, look, we need to go to other things, to other sources, to teach from history or from, uh, from, from experts or PhDs, and then they get away from the Word of God. Uh, let, me, let me say this. I think, and I've been amazed about just how relevant this teaching has been. Uh, Because when people hear, some people are going to be logging on and they're going to be hearing that I'm preaching from Luke 2 this morning. Luke 2, of all things. Uh, In the midst of all that's happening, uh, people are going to sit there and say, what is he doing? He's celebrating Christmas in July. Why would he be teaching on that? But if you've been in our series of the book of Luke, one of the things I've been amazed about is just how relevant these truths have been about all that was happening around the time of Christ and his birth and how relevant it is to everything that we're going through today. 
And so I want to stick with this and continue with the book of Luke preaching through it. And I think this morning we're going to see another truth, a truth about God, that I think that we're going to find to be immensely relevant to all that we're facing and all that we're going through this morning. And here's what I want you to see within the text of Scripture. I want you to see God's sovereign power. God's sovereign power. I want to pick up beginning in verse 1. Uh, Follow along, if you will. In those days, a decree went out with Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be be, uh, registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, if you remember, Luke first marked the birth of John the Baptist by, by, by stating that it happened in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. So now Luke's going to do, do the same thing. He's going to mark Jesus' birth with the reign of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, his actual given name was, was um, actually Octavian. Uh, his given name when he became emperor was Caesar Augustus. Uh, the first name Caesar actually came from his great uncle, Julius Caesar. Uh, then the last part of the name Augustus isn't actually a name, but rather it was a title that was bestowed upon him by the Roman Senate when he became the sovereign ruler. That is the single greatest ruler in all of the empire. It was the first time that any emperor didn't share any other uh, power or ruling abilities or didn't have to answer to anybody else. He was the first one to be able to do it. So he truly was viewed as sovereign ruler over the Roman Empire. And because of this, he was powerful. And because people saw this power in him, they begin to relate to him as a Lord or as a God. In fact, this is the very first time under Caesar Augustus that this emperor worship really began to gain ground and people began to worship him, which caused a great deal of problems for those early Christians during the first century because they refused to worship him as God. And there was even an ancient inscription that referred to Caesar Augustus as the savior of the whole world. Well, he may have been the savior of the whole world, but he's not the type of savior that you and I really want because he wasn't the giving kind of savior. He was the taking type of savior. We read here in a passage that we're all familiar with that he actually gave a decree that went out through the entire empire that everybody was to register back into their ancestral town. That is the town that they were born, where their family came from, for the purposes of him collecting taxes. He wanted to make sure he knew everybody, who who, who all of his citizens were, to make sure that he would get the appropriate amount of taxes for himself to do whatever it was that he wanted to do with that particular money. Now, here's what I want to do. I don't want to bore you with this, but I I do want you to understand that this point in Luke's uh, writing, this is where most critics really get onto him and say, we can't trust this book. Uh, So many people would say, well, listen, there's absolutely no evidence at all throughout all of world history that there was a one time when everybody was on the move in Rome all simultaneously to register because of uh, this huge time where people were supposed to have this census. And in a way, they're absolutely right, but that's probably not the way that it worked. 
instead of viewing this as a one-time calling everybody to move simultaneously, this is probably more uh, of a policy given by Caesar by which he would make sure that throughout the course of the year, the entire empire would in fact register and give the taxes that they were supposed to ultimately give. It would be a little bit similar to us in going and renewing our tax. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but you pay about 100 bucks uh, for each car that you have um, every year uh, around the time of what? Your birthday. That's a type of tax. You're registering your car. And then when do we do it? We don't all go at one time. Instead, we do it during the month of our birth so that all the people aren't going down to the DMV all at one time. So for me, it would be during August. So I go and to pay the tax on my cars every August, pay for that. And there's always a line because there's a lot of other people that were born in August. But what we were doing is at that time, in that right time of the month, we would move. And so something similar was probably happening here, that this was something, that a decree of the entire empire, but it didn't mean that everybody moved at one time, but people began to move depending on what town or city they were from throughout the course of a period of time, a year or even more than that. So that's the, a better explanation of probably what's going on here, despite what the critics would ultimately say. The second problem that we see, and this is really their Bigger, biggest objection, and that has to do with the rule and the reign of Quirinius, who was the, the governor of Syria at the time. Now, we understand through very clear records that he became the governor in 6 AD. Now, the problem is, is that's six to eight years after the actual birth date of Jesus Christ. So you see what their problem is. They would say this couldn't possibly be happening during his reign because he wasn't reigning until six to eight years after the birth of Christ. But in the 1700s, archaeologists discovered that there was actually information that showed that Quirinius actually served twice as governor. Once, or the second time was indeed in 6 AD, but the other time was, guess what, six to eight years before that time. So he served at two different terms at two different times with a, with a span in between. And so we find out that the word of God is in fact, guess what? True, exactly the way that Luke ultimately writes this. Now, why am I telling this to you to bore you? No, I probably already did. I'm not trying to give you just superfluous information that you don't need. Uh, I'm doing this because as in the words of Dorothy, we don't live in Kansas anymore. Uh, we no longer live in a Judeo-Christian culture where the culture just assumes that at least part or the most part of the word of God is true, but rather they believe that the word of God is not true and want to convince you and, of, of this, you and I of the same. And so I, what I found is, is oftentimes when I would preach through something like this, I would just gloss over it because I know that you believe it. But now because of the culture in which we're living, I feel like I need to spend a little bit more time protecting you so that when you hear some professor as a student or somebody else, or you read some book and they say, oh, look at all the mistakes, you don't fall into that trap, but you understand that historically and through archaeology that really the evidence shows that we can trust this book, trust what it was that, that, that the Holy Spirit had inspired Luke to be able to write. And so we have that. Now, I say that because I want to protect you. And that's not the primary purpose of what we're studying. The primary purpose is not that there are a bunch of critics out there seeking to go opposite of what God is doing and go opposite of his will, but rather to show you that God is sovereignly in control of and over and ruling over every one of those critics even one of the most powerful rulers of all time. 
See, Caesar was sovereign in the sense that he answered to no one. He had absolute power. And so what we find is, is that just by one word, one, one word, he could literally disrupt the lives of, of untold millions of people, causing them to drop everything that they were doing and to be able to leave and to be burdened with trying to fulfill his every command. That is to go to these ancestral towns and to be able to register all in order to make sure that they're giving enough taxes. And he had this power, and this is precisely uh, what was going on in the time. And I want you to understand, he wasn't doing this because he was trying to fulfill the will of God. He didn't believe in God. He didn't want to have anything to do with God. He believed himself to be God and demanded people to, to worship him. And anything that he would end up doing was for his own selfish gain with no thought of God or no thought of his glory at all. But here's the amazing part of all of this. The amazing part is, is, even though we had no intention to do the will of God, it was exactly what he was doing. Because in the midst of all these million people who were on the move, there was a couple. Uh, there, there was a couple, a young lady by the name of Mary and her betrothed husband, the, the, her, her husband at the time, Joseph. Now, they were betrothed, the Bible says. I explained this to you before. This means that they were legally married, legally engaged to be married, and so they were husband and wife, but yet they hadn't had the service or consummated the marriage at this point. And in the midst of all of this, they are now, because of this decree of Caesar, they have to return to their ancestral home, which is the city of Bethlehem. And so they've got to actually go back there and to be able to register the both of them. And this is ultimately significant. And the reason that it's significant is because it would be used of God to fulfill not only his promise to David, but also a prophecy that he had given through Micah. Let me explain. In order for the Messiah to be able to meet the criteria of being the Messiah, he had to come from the direct line of David. This was what God had promised David. He promised David so many years before that from his lineage, from his line, would come the Messiah of the world. Well, guess what? They had to be able to prove and let everybody know that Jesus was of that particular lineage. What better way to do it than to demand that everybody would go back to their ancestral home, in this particular case, Bethlehem, which just so happens to be David's ancestral home as well. So by going back, by forcing them to be able to go back, even this pagan ruler uh, causing them to, be, to go through this difficulty to make such a trip to be able to go was actually all in line of fulfilling God's sovereign plan, his promise to David all those years before. And not only through this promise, but also through the prophecy that he had given to Micah. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we read, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who's the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient days. So not only did God have to fulfill his promise to David, that, that from his lineage one would come, which was demonstrated through them coming back and registering in Bethlehem, the same hometown as David. But now it was also going to fulfill the promise that he had made through Micah that the Savior would be born there in Bethlehem. 
What other way was this couple going to make to get back into Bethlehem to fulfill that type of prophecy? It was 80 to 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're not going to make that journey, especially when she's in her third trimester, ready to be able to give birth to a child. But she ends up going back. Why? Because some wicked emperor who is full of himself and only thinks of his own empire and doesn't care about anybody else except for his own selfish gain decides to send people back so that he can get Get their money. Sounds like a horrible thing, sounds like an awful thing, but what he failed to understand is that God was behind it all, sovereignly orchestrating it to bring about his sovereign plan. I, I think of, when I think of this, I think of Proverbs chapter 21 in verse 1. It says this, the king's hand is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He says the same power that God has over water and to be able to get water to do whatever it is that he wants to do, he has the same power over the hand and the control over those rulers, the greatest rulers in human history. Now, you say, well, okay, I get that, but does he really have power over the water? Well, when we read the Bible, we see this consistently, right? In the Old Testament, even in the book of Genesis, when God decides that he is going to judge the world, how does he do it? He does it by water. He, he makes it rain, and, and he brings it from the sky and also up from the ground itself until the whole earth over a, over a period of 40 days and 40 nights is completely flooded, and everybody is wiped out except for those that he had secured within the ark. So when God brings about judgment, he merely speaks to the water, and the water obeys. Then when God is not looking to judge, but rather to be able to deliver his people, he uses water again. Think about it in Egypt just for a moment. And here they are. He's going to deliver the people out of slavery and bondage from Egypt. And then they, they escape. They find themselves right in front of the Red Sea in front of them. Behind them is the Egyptian army wanting to be able to slaughter them. What does God do? He opens up the waters. He literally restrains it where they walk through literally the, the, the world's biggest aquarium with water on both sides, walk through on dry land till they are rescued, get to the other side. Then when that army, that Egyptian army is in the middle of it, God removes his restraining hand and allows the water to go back where it was and he wipes them away. That's in the Old Testament, but we also see his power over water in the New Testament. The very first miracle that Jesus performs is with what? With water into wine. There's not enough wine for the, the wedding ceremony, so you know what he does? He just demands the water that are in these jars, and he basically says, become wine, and the water obeys to change itself into the wine. And then we see again uh, uh, where Jesus is in, in the boat with his disciples. And there's this massive storm. Jesus is sleeping. They're afraid they're going to die because the waves are going to crash and, and, and fill up the boat and sink them. They're all going to die. And they say, Jesus, don't you care for us? And Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. And all of a sudden, everything is perfect. All the waves start, stop raging. The wind stops moving. And then, and then what happens? They say to him, they say, who is this who has the power over the wind and the waves? That is over the weight of the created things of this world. Answer is God does. The whole creation will do as God says. Not only everything, but everyone. 
He says, even though he has that type of power over the creation, that the water will do whatever he says for it to do, either bring judgment or deliverance or just to demonstrate that he is sovereign God over all, the water is going to do as he sees fit. And he goes, guess what? So are politicians. So are those rulers who are over ultimus, even those who are no power that don't answer to anybody else. God will allow them to do as they want to do, even in their own sinfulness, but in God's great sovereignty over that rule. He is the overruler. He makes sure that whatever is being done goes according to his sovereign plan, which is always for his glory and which is always for our good. God, church, has not abdicated the throne. He's not off the throne. He's not lost. He's not on vacation. He is very much in control over everything and even what is an apparent chaos in the world in which we're living right now. He is still as much control as he was a month ago, a year ago, or a century ago. And now I know that some people might think there and say, well, Pastor Mike, that's great, but we kind of already know that. We kind of already know that God is in control, but do we actually know it? No, I, look, I, I get it. If I were to send out a test to you guys today, don't worry, I'm not gonna do it. But if I were to send you a test and say, hey, true or false, God is sovereign over all of his creation, everything and everyone, you'd be able to know enough to say, Mark, yes. But yet, it's something we cognitively know, but it's not something that we've really believed by faith. Because so many Christians still around from things that I hear from internet by, by supposed Christians and even leaders in church and pastors, they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Like the whole sky is falling as though God somehow doesn't have this, that he doesn't have the power to be able to keep all this together. That somehow, I don't know, he fell asleep or he went away somewhere. And that's not the case at all. And somebody says, well, but is this truth actually supposed to help us? Yeah, it kind of is. You mean that a God who does all things for his glory and for your mind good is absolutely and completely in control over everything and everyone in his creation. Yeah, the Bible assumes that, you know what? That's supposed to help you and I. What it does, it exchanges the fear within our heart of the unknown and exchanges that fear with the peace of a sovereign God who is in control. Let me just give you just two simple points or three simple points of application. Then I'll give you an illustration and we're gonna be done already this morning. Again, that's my COVID gift to you this morning, one point sermon. So what does this mean when we truly believe in the sovereignty of God? How does it exchange this fear for peace within our heart? Well, when we believe in a sovereign God, we need not fear governments, not even our own when they seem to reject all things God. Um, I hear a lot about what are we gonna do about this election? This election is coming up and in the midst of all this, who is gonna win? Republicans, Democrats, somebody in between, somebody gonna come out of nowhere. Who's gonna ultimately win this thing? And let me say this, we do have a responsibility as citizens of this country and as stewards of everything that God has entrusted us in to make sure that we do everything in our best way possible to be able to promote the interests of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And no politician is ever gonna do that perfectly, but we are entrusted to do the best that we can with that. There's no doubt about it. But you know what we need not fear? 
We need not fear however that election ends up turning out. We don't have to fear who is sitting on the Supreme Court. We don't have to fear who's going to be the president of the United States. We don't have to prove who's in Congress. Why? Because even though they might be ruling, there is an overruler who will lead them to do his very will. And it will be done despite who is, who is going to be there, despite who is ultimately in quote, in charge and sovereignly ruling things because God is sovereignly ruling over all, not man, not man. And only what will come to pass will be the sovereign will of God for his glory and for his people's good. Number two, oh, and let, me, let me read this, Psalm, Psalm two, before I go. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you see the threats of those against God and against his people? Here's the response of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because here is a people that think that they are in control, that they are the one that is dictating human history. And God says, I myself am in control for my glory and my people's good. Let me give you a second. We need not fear our death. We need not fear our death. You know, it's interesting is um, some of you, if maybe you've had COVID, maybe you don't, but once everybody knows that you have it, your relationships change really quickly. Uh, Even though I'm completely clear and I'm allowed to go wherever it is that I want to, and and I get this, I understand this, I'll walk around our neighborhoods and you see people sheltering their children, entering in, please get away from him, get away from him. And so I'm still trying to stay away, but it's just an interesting factor that nobody wants to be around the COVID guy. I get it. I I get that. But but what's, what's interesting with this is people even asking questions. So what was it like? Tell me what you had. Tell me what I need to be looking for. And a lot of those questions that people are asking is because I think it is really because of fear that's driving them. And, uh, and, and I want to let you know something, that God is sovereign over your life. That for you and I, God, before the creation of the earth, gave you and I a certain number of days that we will live on this earth. Certain number of days. And all the worrying about COVID in the world will neither add to those days or subtract from those days. God knows and has given us a certain number of days and nothing is going to impact that one way or another. COVID-19 or no COVID-19. God has a plan for your life. And when he says it's enough, it will ultimately be enough. But that is in his sovereign timing. I'm not suggesting, listen, that, that we just throw caution to the wind. And, and we're not smart about things. Of course, of course, we're going to try to do all we can to be able to stay healthy and keep the ones that we love healthy. Why? Because we believe that life is, is precious. It's significant. It's important to us. But here's the thing is we can be careful without living in fear. We can be careful in making sure that we're washing our hands and doing different things and making smart decisions, which is what God would ultimately us to do, but at the same time, not worrying why, because God is ultimately sovereign over the days of my life and over your life as well. And I understand that there are gonna be some that sit back and they say, well, Pastor Mike, what I'm worried about is not so much me, but maybe my kids or maybe my loved ones, and I get that. Look, we've even had loss in our own church, and I know that that family is struggling and that's painful. And I would never wanna belittle that at all. 
at all. And, and the difficulty with it is we don't always have all the questions, right? We sit there and go, yeah, but God, but why? Why, in the, why did this happen at this time? And let me tell you the truth. God doesn't give us those answers. He doesn't give those, those specifics that we want to. Instead, he gives us these broad promises, these broad truths, these broad realities of who God is, where he sits there and he says, I know, I know that you can't see the good in this. I know you can't see the glory in any of this. And, and I'm, uh, I'm saying this with as much tenderness as I possibly can in my heart, but trying to be as biblically accurate as I can to you is that God will sit there and say, I know you can't see any good in this. You can't see any good in anyone dying. And, and here's what I would say is, every time we sit there and say, this is impossible, we have to remember that the greatest injustice and, and most tragic act in human history was Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross, but yet from the greatest injustice, the greatest blessing came and the greatest good came that you and I would be able to be reconciled through the person of Jesus Christ with God. So our thoughts are not God's thoughts. His ways are above our ways. He doesn't give us the information that we need to dissect and understand each one. He just gives us this wonderful promise that he is sovereignly in control and nothing will happen apart from his sovereign permission, which is for his glory and for your and my good even if we don't understand it all the time. Let me give you one third thing. Third thing, we need not fear when plans don't go our way. There are so many people right now that are looking back and what, what they do is they, they begin to think, well, this is real. I think of the seniors who are graduating. I think people who were trying to get a job. I think people who just had different plans and those whole plans seem to be messed up. And they're like, what now? What are we gonna do? What college am I gonna go to? What, how am I gonna pay for it? A am I gonna get this? Am I gonna be able to go here? And all of these things seem to be such a struggle. But yet we learn in the word of God that God can even take the things that are meant for evil and make them good. We think of Genesis 50 and verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You and I often live on emotional roller coasters based on whether things go as we would plan them. And the reality is, is every time things don't go as planned, which by the way, in my life, always seems to be the case, when they don't go and things seem to be bad, at that particular point, we begin to wonder if anything good at all can happen. But the Bible says, yes, that God is so sovereign over all that he can even take what is bad or when plans are going against us and he can use it for our very good. That is a sovereign God. And that's the point that God wants to drive home in here is that God, even if people or, or viruses seem to be ruling the day, they're not ruling the day. God is on his throne. God is completely in control. He's doing everything for his purposes, for his glory. And you know, a wonderful way for us to be able to live, I think, is in light of Paul and Paul's teaching. When he says in Philippians chapter one and verse 21, for he says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. The only way that he can say that is if he understands that a sovereign God is in control. When he says, hey, look, for me to live is Christ, that means that every day, no matter virus, no virus, job, no job, uh, suffering, no suffering, whatever it is, nothing changes in my purpose of life. My purpose of life is to live for Jesus. 
to make him known, to teach him to my children, to be able to share uh, the gospel with my friends and with the world, to do all of these things. That's what God is called. He says, that's what my life is. He says, but to die is gain. Why? Because the one who I live for, I finally get as my full inheritance of Jesus Christ. With the sovereign God at the controls, what is there for you and I to fear? And the Bible assumes that it's by us knowing this, that you and I can live in peace even in the midst of the chaos. I want to close with this last illustration. Uh, Some of my best illustrations in the world come from the wonderful movie, The Princess Bride. And uh, this one is just like it. In The Princess Bride, there is a scene where there's a man by the name of Inigo Montoya, who is a wonderful Spanish swordsman. He had been studying sword fighting for all of his life because he wants to take revenge on somebody who killed his father. Well, he, he finally meets up with Wesley. Wesley is, is, is the dread pirate Roberts, and he is really the hero. He's going after his princess, and, and they meet up, and, and they're about to fight, and they begin to sword fight, and it's a wonderful scene, them fighting back and forth. Well, Inigo Montoya, at one point, he begins to understand that Wesley is better than him. In fact, he, he begins to lose the battle, and he says, he says, he says you are amazing. He says, you are my, he goes, I must admit, you are better than me. And Wesley turns to him, and he says, and he says, then why are you smiling? And Inigo Matoya says, I know something that you do not know. He goes, I am not left-handed. So he takes the sword from his left hand, and he throws it over to his right, and then he begins to win the sword battle. Well, as he begins to win and he begins to progress, all of a sudden, Wesley stops and says, well, there's something that I know that you do not know. And he says, what is this? And he goes, I am not left-handed either. And so he takes a sword from the left hand, puts it to his right hand, and he ends up defeating his enemy. But here's, here's the point. The point of it is, is even in the midst of the circumstances where it clearly seemed that they were losing ground and that they were losing the battle, even though that might came, there was still a smile on their face. Why? Based on what they knew to be true. And I want to encourage you, church, to be people of faith. All these years, this is what we've been training for. We've been training for you and I to take God at his word and believe we've learned week after week after week that God is in control. Let you and I live like it. Let you and I be careful, take care of our responsibilities, do what God has called us to do, but let us sleep and let us, even when things seem to be getting yucky and mucky and it might even seem from the outside world and from those who are opposed to God that we are somehow losing, that there could be a smile on our face of joy knowing that God is sovereign over all things. Will you join me with that this morning? Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you. You are good and you are an awesome God. I thank you for this morning. I pray that this is a timely word coming and encouraging our folks. God, that they will just be uplifted in you this morning, sitting back going, I don't understand it all. I don't need, all all I understand is what God has revealed in his word. And there is nothing that comes to pass that is not according to God's sovereign will, which is for his glory and for my good. Lord Jesus, we thank you. In your precious name we pray, amen. Love you all so much. Be healthy and we'll talk with you soon.